Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is February the 21st, and I'm on the road, as I've been for the last few days in New York City. Um, last week, we did an interesting show with the distinguished American poet Garrett Hongo on what Lehab called his audio obsession, his obsession with um, acoustical truth about the reproduction of audio uh, in our age of digital, in our age um, of ubiquitous MP3 technology. And that kind of took us on to talking about Walter Benjamin, uh, he has a wonderful book in the in the early 20th century called The Work of Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction. Benjamin, like a lot of early 20th century theorists, was obsessed with the idea of the authentic, was trying to make sense of it. Of course, behind all this is the idea of fake, um, of invention. Uh, there's always been invention, particularly in the art world. Uh, Orson Welles's wonderful 1973 movie, F for Fake, is a particularly interesting, um, shall we say, reproduction or investigation of the idea of fakery in the art world. Uh, and faking in art is all the news these days because of the cult of NFTs, of digital technology, of non fungible tokens that, um, at least according to The Guardian, is creating um, an estimated $22 billion worth of fakes of fraud in the art world. All this is relevant in the context of my guest today. Her name is Erica Katz. Uh, she herself, I guess, is a kind of fake. We'll get onto that later in the conversation. But Erica is the author. Of a, of a wonderful new novel. It's out this week. It's called Fake. Um, you will also uh, remember Erica for Lovers of Contemporary Fiction. She's the author of The, Boy, uh, of the Boys Club, uh, which uh, was one of the hits of last year. So Erica, welcome. We're both in New York. Um, why this book on fake? What's so interesting about the, the world of fake art? So I, I think it's probably set in the world of fake art, but the inspiration for the novel was actually born out of my increased use of social media um, and my own struggle with presenting an authentic face to the world. So when I sat down to want to write about um, how social media dictates the authenticity with which we display ourselves, um, I quickly decided that that was a little too on the nose for the novel and the art world, which I've always been fascinated by, presented itself through NFT chatter and the cancellation because of COVID of all the art fairs that go on every year in my newsfeed. And I thought it was this really beautiful allegory um, for the world that the protagonist Emma is exploring in her personal life, um, the physical manifestation of fake art 
just seemed the perfect mirror to discuss her journey. And that is why I said it in the art world. Well, I'm thrilled that you, you brought up social media. I, I have to admit, um, reading the book, I guess that. Uh, what is it about social media, Erica, that has created what some people call the, the cult of authenticity? It seems a particular paradox. The more fake social media becomes, and it is, of course, intrinsically fake, the more people become obsessed with the authentic, with the true. Why? I think um, that's the case where any sort of fraud is afoot. And as you said in, in the brilliant introduction, thank you for that. Um, it's been fascinating to people for as long as there's been something authentic, there has been an inauthentic version of it. And I think the juxtaposition of those two things makes people search for truth, um, which of course, you know, extend the paradox one step further. And that is, that's a beautiful thing, the search for truth. It is, it's what science is based on. It's what self-improvement self is based on and therapy and all of that. Um, so I, I, I just think that social media is so ubiquitous in our world today that the search for truth, which is, which is an obvious repercussion of sort of misrepresenting oneself is also becoming ubiquitous. Um, I personally find it ironic that um, there is this necessarily fake pretend authenticity on social media. So, the, um, you know, a few years ago, hashtag unfiltered went viral, um, Instagram versus reality. But as you said, there is an intrinsic fakeness to a world that you're presenting willingly and consciously to the rest of the population. So all of these attempts at authenticity are in my mind, just once again, filtered and fake. And I just, and I hope you'd agree that I'm not hypercritical of it in the book. I'm just fascinated by it. And it has its utility and certainly in business, which I, which I hope I get across in the book, it really has utility, but um, that doesn't mean that it's not fascinating and often quite inauthentic. Yeah, it's intriguing, which um, is is the heart of the novel. Um, and, and what was also intriguing to me is that you, as Erica Katz, have indeed your own Instagram page, which <laughs> I was looking at today and it's full of references to this new book, Fake. And yet, as I said, Erica, in the introduction, you are in a way a fake. I mean, there's a real Erica there talking to me from New York, actually not far from where I am um, in, in downtown Manhattan. Um, but you use a pseudonym. Why, why did you choose to use this pseudonym? Why don't you reveal who you really are? Um, it's probably like the worst kept secret, to be completely honest. But the real answer I think there is a um, a very practical answer and then a more romantic answer. And I will give you the practical one first, which is that I penned my first novel while working as an attorney at a law firm. Yeah, the boy, as I said, The Boys Club, which was a big hit. Congratulations again on that. Thank you very much. Um, and The Boys Club is hypercritical of law firm life and big business in general, and it is an exploration of the power struggles that go on in corporate America. And 
if we're being completely candid, I was earning a great living as an attorney and I had no idea whether fake, sorry, whether the boys club would sell, um, whether I'd earn $10 from it and then get fired from my job because it is, you know, it's a pretty scathing review of law firms in America. Um, and I don't really have any other marketable skills or way to earn an income. And so that level of separation was um, completely an operation of fear. And uh, I penned it under a pseudonym because I thought perhaps, even though my picture is on it and when it sold, I was more comfortable with any repercussions come what may, um, you know, I, I thought perhaps I could fly under the radar if if it was nothing as a novel. And I thank my lucky stars every day that people did read it and it became a force in and of itself. And I had to disclose it to my law firm and they were supportive and they knew it wasn't about them and um, they they were wonderful about it, but I didn't want to get fired. Um, so, so that's why I used the pseudonym um, until I knew what it really was. Then it was just the name I wrote under, but I think the more romantic answer, and it's not less true, it's just a little more lofty, um, is that the boys club parallels my life, um, my real life in some very um, obvious inflection points. It is about a young attorney in New York City who went to a top school, who lives in Manhattan and is working at a, you know, a top 10 law firm. And all of that was happening in my real life the book is entirely fiction. And I worried that if people knew who I was, they would play the game of who is real in this book, who in Erica's real life, my, my real first name is Erica, who in Erica's real life is this character. And the truth is, is that it was no one. And I thought that it would compromise the integrity of what I was trying to do, which was to discuss very real situations through fiction. Um, and I think that you dampen the game of what is this character doing and why did the author make this choice if you think she's just telling the truth, um, which I wasn't. I mean, I was telling a truth, but not my truth. And um, I think that people are also far more willing to criticize a character when they, they don't think they're offending anyone. And the protagonist in the boys club, Alex Vogel, was so faulted and made so many errors that I wanted people to be candidly discussing those rather than wondering if they were offending me because she was me. Erica, you begin the book um, with a wonderful quote from Nietzsche, classic and a, a, a classic Nietzschean quote. Um, we have to, we have art in order not to die of the truth. We've been talking, Erica, about the value of the truth, but Nietzsche suggested that the truth was dangerous and that that's why we needed art. Is that why you write fiction, to avoid the truth? Um, so the Nietzsche quote was um, extremely apropos to what I was writing about. However, um, I disagree with him. I actually create art and I write novels to further explore my truth. Um, what I'm thinking and what I'm feeling always manages to come out in, in very circuitous ways. Um, not always obvious to me as I'm writing, but as I'm editing, I sort of see myself working through uh, personal conflict and, and past unresolved issues. And truth be told, I'm not really, truth be told, right? Um, I'm not really the biggest fan of traditional therapy. 
Um, I've tried it. I think it's great. I think it works for people. Um, I, I wish it worked for me, but I find that um, a long, quiet jog on the Hudson River and a full day of writing, and I am my most centered, most reflective, most authentic self. And um, that is why I write. It is my own personal brand of therapy. And I actually think it uncovers the truth for me. Um, but I think Nietzsche was saying something else, which is that it is this beauty that we create to connect with each other because real life is, can just be so painful. Um, and, I, and I do discuss that a bit in the book, especially in the conclusion. And I know that many of your listeners um, have not read the book yet. And so no spoilers, but I do talk about how art is this humanizing um, force, forcing function for people to discuss and look at a single thing, how, how you and I are sitting here talking about a book right now. Um, and, and it allows people to discuss these very real issues in a less painful manner. Eric, as you uh, Erica, as you, I almost called you Eric. Erica, as you suggested, you're oh, evoking. Okay, don't worry. Yeah, you're definitely not Eric. Um, the, the, uh, the, um, your first book, The Boys Club, was a critique of big law. Um, and as you said, you hid behind various identities, partially for personal, partially for professional reasons but the book is about the law the world of the law um fake is about the world of high-end art and um, of course reproductive art and fake art um what were you what are you trying to say in in fake about this world my sense is that you're ambivalent on the one hand you recognize the attraction the glamour the money the sexiness on the other hand, you can see through it that it is, excusing the pun, profoundly inauthentic. It is in itself fake, whether or not it's dabbling in real or fake art. I'm not sure that I think that, um, you know, high-end art is fake, but... I mean, the high-end art world, the commercial no, no, world. No, exactly. So, so I believe in the integrity of much of the art um, that I see and that I consume, um, whether it be painting or whether it be film um, or any anything in between. Um, but the markets surrounding any sort of um, subjective value judgment, I'm so critical of. Um, so I think that you you can make the argument in art that, you know, cream always rises, that the best of the best is always somehow seen by the public and picked up by a gallery and Do you believe that uh, argument that cream no. rises to the top, Erica? <laughs> no, um, I don't, and which is which is hence the criticism. Um, but I do think that there are these markets that set prices, and I, I talk about in my book, um, you know, minimum bids required at auction houses, and even auctions, which are supposed art auctions, which are meant to be the most transparent display of how a market views an art or artist um, is rigged from the beginning. And it is it has turned into the largest unregulated big business out there. Um, and again, I'm not um, I'm not upset about it. I just find it fascinating. Um, and as, I hope as a lawyer or as a novelist or as both you're wearing no, both. As a novelist. 
Yeah. And I mean, I did, I did corporate law, so I'm also not upset about it as a lawyer. I mean, there's only so many battles you can pick in, in your life, but, um, there really, I mean, there really is very little regulation of the, this multi-billion dollar industry. And, um, I don't know whether that's because to play in it, you need a baseline of, um, income and therefore, it's play at your own risk and the only people to get hurt are the one percent of the one percent but um it's still interesting right and um it, it doesn't mean it, it breeds inauthenticity the fact that um there is so much market manipulation happening behind the scenes by those with a vested interest in keeping the value of their commodity what about your own taste, Erica? And uh, the book begins with a reference to uh, Gauguin's uh, uh, Tefar, uh, which actually, interestingly enough, Garrett Hongo also brought up. There's also really? lots of references to Chagall in the book, uh, to works of art by Chagall. Do you have a particular love? I mean, we're both in New York City at the moment, the city which probably houses more great art than any other city in the world. I think um, my personal taste in art is um, was probably underdeveloped when I went into writing this book. Um, I have friends who exist and breathe the art world, who trade in art, who consult in art, and I've tagged along on a number of trips and art fairs with them and museum visits, and I find that their knowledge of what goes on behind a painting to be so impressive that I always thought that I just didn't even know enough to form an opinion. I do know I'm drawn to um, more traditional impressionist art um, rather than modern art, but sometimes you see a piece of modern art that blows your mind. And, you know, the Whitney, I think, is my favorite museum and, and that runs the gamut. And um, the Met is probably my favorite place to get lost in for hours at a time. Um, and I haven't been in far too long. I mean, um, COVID really um, hindered any in-person research plans I had to visit the places I discussed. Um, but I think I do love Impressionist art, which is why I had Emma, by the way, for also practical reasons, she copied Impressionist art, but it's also what I wanted to spend my time researching because I do, I do love it. And I wanted to understand more about, it was, it was fun for me to have her paint Impressionist art because then I could discover what was happening behind the scenes. And I am a big personal fan of Chagall. My grandmother was a huge Chagall fan and she taught me quite a bit. Yeah, I want to come back to that later. There's um, there's a scene in MoMA in New York, uh, which is modern art, of course, the Museum of Modern Art, which has always seemed to me a little pretentious. Um, do you see modern art in that sense, post Chagall, post Gauguin? As pretentious? And sort of, in, you know, sort of this cult of inauthenticity uh, or the cult of authenticity, which by definition, of course, is inauthentic, being rooted in the kind of people, not everybody, but many of the people who show up at MoMA and walk around impressed with stuff that they don't really understand. I, I think probably modern art speaks to some people, um, not so much to me. And I do think that, and it's all tied up in social media and the art fairs and the young people who promote themselves in the market. Um, 
that there are a lot of people who don't understand it, but there's a culture of cool surrounding modern art and people are dying to participate in it um, and be a part of it and post about it and be seen as those curators of cool um, on social media. So, I mean, it, it all ties back into what I was writing about. Um, I will say that it doesn't necessarily speak to me. Um, I don't think I'm one of those people who looks at modern art and says, um, my six-year-old could have done that because, right, the, the answer is always, but they don't because there is all this thought behind it. And I think there are modern artists who explain what they do and the decisions they make and why, and it blows my mind. I just happen to know that it doesn't necessarily speak directly to me or move me when I look at it. And I think um, that is a conclusion I reached early in my research for fake, which was the subjective judgment of what is good. It should just be something that moves you emotionally and stirs you creatively. And for any sort of market to dictate what that is for an individual leads to a whole esoteric conversation on what good taste is and what personal preference should be. Um, you know, who is to say that the best Bordeaux in the world is better to a Coca-Cola if you hate Bordeaux and love Coca-Cola, right? So one is way more expensive, but um, writing fake really allowed me to become comfortable with personal opinion, um, even if it's counter to popular opinion, which is which is always a difficult place to find yourself contrary to the, the way the sea is moving. But um, yes, I think if art speaks to you, it speaks to you and that's great. And modern art speaks to a lot of people. I'm just not one of them. Um, Erica, uh, I, we talked earlier, I, I mentioned the Orson Welles movie, the 73 movie F for Fake, in which Welles, I think, certainly romanticizes the idea or the ideal of the forger. You do a little bit of that. The heroine of your book works for the FBI, so she's a kind of legal forger. She she copies paintings. Um, she works for the FBI for various reasons. I don't want to give away too much of the plot. Um, in your research and writing of the book, did it give you an appreciation, a sense of romance or glamour? Baker, the person who reproduces modern art, uh, reproduces great art in ways which make it very, very hard to distinguish the original from the fake. Right. Um, so, so if someone, um, I struggle with the, um, the lack of inspiration behind forgery. And it's my one qualm with why I don't overly romanticize it, because I think part of creating art is original thought and original ideas. And so I think I talk a lot about how the protagonist, Emma, is technically superior, right? She is amazing. She can copy anything, but she hasn't quite found that spark of inspiration that made her an artist. And I do think, you know, fr from the media I consumed on forging, I actually, I do find it um, so intriguing. And I want to try not to use um, the term romanticized because I, I do... I do realize that they're copying someone else's original thought, and I am unimpressed by that. Um, but it is amazing to fool the masses. And who is to say that if they can do what they do with forging, 
as well with original thought. If they have an original thought and they do paint and it's amazing and it's technically phenomenal, why is that person probably going to make a couple hundred dollars? Whereas the Picasso they're copying goes for millions, right? And that is something I find really interesting when a forger is a talent. Um, and this is what, this is the book I wrote, which is um, the most fascinating scenario to me in forging is that the forger is an actual talent, but to get by because the market undervalues them, they copy someone else's art. Um, so this, I mean, I, it is a romanticized version of the forger, but I, I don't think, um, I don't think I would go so far as to say, uh, they are tantamount and equal to the original artist just because they can copy them well. Erica, the headlines today, um, escaping the art world are dark about the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the Russians show up in your book. Um, they're central in a way. Again, I don't want to give away too much of the plot. We had, we've had lots of shows about Putin and Russia. We, last week we had the Brookings Institute Angela Stent on the show talking about how Putin created a paranoid and polarized world. Again, without wishing to give away too much of the plot, but it's no coincidence that Russia is also the both the symbolic and financial economic heart of fakery in the art world, is it? It's 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 unsurprising. Correct. Um, and and. Thank you for bringing that up. And I, th I think it's precisely for all the reasons that we have spoken about up until this point, which I mean, I, I found this conversation fascinating, but the fascinating part is the people who don't distinguish between the market and the art, right? And I think that um, not, to, not to oversimplify things, but I think that there is um, a culture of, uh, get aheadness in in Russia, um, a little bit of a detached, um, I don't know, I literally want to call it a Cold War mentality, but I guess it's their, I mean, it's their life. Um, but right, the, the lack of what I view as an American consumer of the news, by the way, so it's highly skewed, but a lack of the soul and appreciation for the, the spark of what I think is humanity. Um, and just like taking over the world's mentality. Um, right. I mean, they are all over the news right now. They are imminently going to, um, you know, um, oh my God, I, I dispatch troops. I, for, I forget the word for it, but, um, you know, they're, they're looking to take over land and take over people and at what cost, right? At, at um, right. People will die and someone will gain power temporarily perhaps, but, there is the soul that I think that I'm trying to um, trying to elevate and fake of Emma Khan um, just doesn't exist in what I view as the Russian ethos. Speaking of Russia, you know, you, we, we, we talked earlier about Chagall, uh, the great Marc Chagall, the um, French artist, but really a, a, an artist of memory of the old Jewish world. Uh, you mentioned that it. You like uh, Chagall, your your grandmother as well. Chagall invents a world that got destroyed, of course, during the Second World War. Um, and we did a show last week with 
uh, actually a law professor, and Nomi Stolzenberg from USC on the American Shtetl, an attempt to recreate that lost world, that world that was destroyed by the Nazis that Chagall so brilliantly represents. Chagall's world is of memory, but memory is never exact, so it's also a kind of lie. So the, the greatest of artists, Erica, are the best liars, aren't they? Isn't that kind of Nietzschean? Yes, they're not, very they're not copying other people. But Chagall right. is a great artist because he recreates a world that firstly is lost and secondly, he's not doing it in a literal sense. Right, I was just gonna say, um, for me, Chagall is like the most amazing dream of what could have been. And that is always how I feel looking at his art. It is- Or what was that we, we can't go back right. to. Right, uh, right, either great. way. Um, I mean, if he is representing reality for him, then he's, you know, obviously unstable. So I wouldn't say that he's painting the real world, but um, yeah, he's he's elevating it, in my opinion, which is what I, I think all wonderful artists do. Um, I aspire every day to write a version of truth that is um, blown up and thinned out in all the right places so as to help a reader draw conclusions and ask questions and spur their imagination in a way that the real world doesn't because you have the ability to manipulate thought as the dictator of art and um it is an awesome responsibility and i hope that i do a job that job with integrity um and i think chagall is not not that I'm comparing myself to Chagall in any manner, but Chagall is um, this wonderful example of somebody who transports who transports people um, through his painting. Um, and I'm Jewish, and I think um, every Jewish household who has had a conversation about art had a conversation about Mark Chagall because he is so brilliant, and um, we are a small tribe, and we try to elevate those extra famous members of it in conversations around the dinner table. Um, yes, he's brilliant. You know, I've often said um, I would never have dated an actor when I was single because they, they just lie professionally for a living. And um, here I am um, and I do the same thing. So I think all great artists are liars, um, are fakes, but hopefully the product that they produce um, leads to even more real conclusions and thought and a more truthful reality. Yeah, I wonder whether that's really what Nietzsche meant when he said, when he wrote, we have art in order not to die of the truth. I, I'm not sure you and Nietzsche are in so much disagreement there, but no, certainly um, uh, Erica Katz's new novel, Fake, um, is out. I think it's out today or certainly tomorrow. tomorrow. It's a must read. Well, it's out tomorrow, but I'm sure they can get it today, Erica. We want them to order it. Right? I, yeah, and bookstores, um, which is uh, if you need any extra incentive to go to your local bookstore rather than order online, sometimes bookstores. Yeah, but don't steal it. I mean, you know, no. it's about fake, but uh, it's a real book, and Erica is a real author, even if it's not her last name. Her pet <laughs> is not real. So she needs support, everybody. Good. It's a, anyone who liked um, The Boys Club is going to love Fate. And uh, the reviews have been great, Erica. I'm sure it's going to be another huge success. So congratulations on that. It's lovely to talk to you. Lovely. Um, Thank you for having me.
Oh, well, thank you for coming on. And then what else should people be reading, Erica, in addition to uh, fake these days? What are you reading or what are you intending to read? Um, I just cracked open Black Cake by Charmaine Wilkerson, and it is delicious. It is so well written and her um, her commands of prose is really enviable. It's her debut novel, so it is uh, even more of a triumph. I would suggest everyone pick it up and devour it, um, Black Cake. And um, a personal author friend of mine who writes these absolutely fascinating books um, that explore human nature at its worst, even though she's the most lovely person, um, anything by Carol, Carola Lovering. She wrote Tell Me Lies, which is being turned into a series. And she just came out with Too Good to Be True, which is amazing. It's quite a ride. And it's a quick read. Yeah, if she's a friend of yours, you can introduce me and then get her on the show. Absolutely. Um, love it. Finally, Erica, I'm asking everyone this, uh, and, and you're as well positioned as a writer and a New York lawyer. Who runs the world, Erica Katz, author of Fake? Uh, my my real answer is that any child from age three to seven who has command of a smartphone or other devices the way they do um, is running this world. Um, my nephew constantly makes online purchases with, that we need to unwind. Um, I think that technology in the hands of young people is a beautiful and terrifying thing. And I'm excited to be old in a world run by these young geniuses.